Hey, it's Elizabeth here to quickly let you know that we recorded this episode of Daddy Issues the day before the shootings in Uvalde, Texas took place. If you want to learn about what you can do to make it less easy for teenage boys and people in general to buy assault weapons, go to everytown.org or support the Mothers of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America at momsdemandaction.org. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to Daddy Issues. Tell me about your father's current affairs and pop culture talk show in which we determine what in recent news exhibits the symptoms of, you guessed it, Daddy Issues. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. I'm Matthew Philp. And today we are thrilled to be joined by the comedian, writer, and actor Joel Kim Booster. Joel is the writer and star of the brand new movie Fire Island, directed by Andrew Ahn, a gay romantic comedy based on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Go see it. It's truly so lovely and gratifying and good. I loved it. Matt loved it. I did. His brand new Netflix comedy special, Psychosexual, debuts on Netflix on June 21st, and we can't wait to see that as well. Welcome to Daddy Issues, Joel. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thank you for being here after your big, long press day for Fire Island. How are you? I'm good. I was um, doing a photo shoot today, standing in the middle of a lake. So my body has been submerged underwater for like five hours and (laughs) I am very tired and very soggy, but I'm good. Same. I was doing the same thing. So I totally understand where you're coming from. (laughs) Was it really cold water? Are you like, oh no. My body hasn't quite adjusted yet, but we're we're, we're getting there. Well, congratulations on Fire Island. Matt and I both both saw it. It's so, so good. We, you know, Matt and I both said this will be rom-com canon. And gay canon too, I think. This is our pride show. You couldn't be more appropriate for this show. I talked to my boyfriend about this a couple of weeks ago when we watched it. It was like, I get the sense this is going to be canon. So it's kind of... Thank you so much. Um... It's based on Pride and Prejudice. I will say this. If you don't know Pride and Prejudice, as I did not, I watched Fire Island and I'm like, okay. And then I went and watched the Kira Knightley and mm-hmm. also the first episode of the 1995 Colin Firth. And I'm like, this makes complete sense to me. It makes complete <laughs> sense to me why you did this. But yeah. it made sense when you hadn't seen it too, right? I mean, the film made sense on yeah. its own. I'm just saying like great, the reference great. that, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I see it all playing out. Like I totally like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask in terms of like just orienting an audience, this is like major studio movie. Like you worked mm-hmm. with Searchlight on this. Yeah. And I wondered what it was like negotiating gay content with them. Because you have to kind of explain gay culture to yeah. gay people. I, you know, I will say I was lucky. One of my creative execs at Searchlight, Richard Ruiz, is a gay man. So that was helpful. They didn't put up as much of a fight as I thought they would about certain references and certain moments in the movie. I mean, there was a lot. It was an educational process. Like, they had a lot of questions after that first pass at the script. But I, I will say that they were really down for allowing some of the references to go over the, the heads of straight people or straight or people who wouldn't understand them. I did not want to make a movie that felt watered down for straight audiences. Like I just wanted to make a movie that felt very specific and very nuanced. And I think like, you know, people are able to suspend their disbelief mm-hmm. or, you know, I, I think it's like you have to give straight people more credit 
I think, yeah. um, for like being able to watch something that maybe is not exactly for them. You know, we've had to do that for, you know, the entirety of our existence. Right. Um, you know, I, and we find ways in even when the stories aren't about us. And I think that like, straight people are able to do that and if they're not then they you know it's a skill that they need to learn it's something um, you can't help them at that point yeah yeah it's exactly not, it's not for you but yeah it. they were really open to allowing us to be as specific as we felt we needed to be without you know sort of pulling us back i, I can't think really of anything anything that they made me cut because they were worried that it wouldn't play with a straight audience so I, I i lucked out in that way um we also like andrew and i we had a really good, like, sort of good cop, bad cop relationship with the studio where, like, he was good cop and I was a nightmare to them. Um, so <laughs> I think they were just too afraid um, to say no at certain points. How was that to be a nightmare to a studio? Um, I mean, it was a grading on the curve of, of I, my nightmare is, is a lot of people's good days. So I think that they, <laughs> they lucked out on a lot. But um, I sent some tersely worded emails over the course of the process of making this movie. But um for the by and large, they were really ideal creative partners. Because Bowen Yang talked about some of the pressure that he felt as an Asian gay man on SNL to represent. And it seems to me like this is a time where Asian actors and, and Asian writers and directors are, are finally being allowed to ascend to this level, you know, by mainstream culture. Yeah. And with that must come a certain, I mean, sorry, I don't want to put words into your mouth. Do you feel pressured to be like representative or to achieve something specific or to help people? Yeah, I mean, there is that that pressure exists. Andrew was really great about this too. We didn't let it control our our creative process mm -hmm. that much. I I mean, like I knew I I felt that pressure and I knew that that there was a lot of expectations around this and I think it's something because there aren't a lot of gay movies just in general, there is this sort of undue pressure put on the few that are made. You know, I was just talking to Billy Eichner about this with bros and like, because there are so few of us, like there is this pressure to represent everybody and the few that we do get. But I'm hoping that again, it, it comes down to that specificity. Like Andrew kept telling me through the course of making this movie, he was like, we cannot make this movie for Twitter. We just can't. Like yeah. there are going to be people who, who are going to feel, you know, that they were left out of this conversation or this movie or that they weren't represented correctly or this, that, and the other thing. And, and ultimately I really just wanted to tell a story about Bowen and I's friendship, yeah. you know, and like the specificity of that relationship and, and what we've gone through and what it's like for us to navigate this community together. And if other queer people, if other Asian people see themselves reflected in that experience, then that's great. I certainly don't think that Bowen and I's experience is out of uh, the realm of a lot of people's experience who share our identity. But I, I also think that like it's even if you don't relate to our experience specifically, it's still a fun, funny, you know, romp. And so I think you'll be able to find ways in. You but know? having, like, yeah, I, like watching somebody else's experience just because you didn't experience yeah. it. I will say when Bowen uh, Yang says, oh, my God, I just feel alone here. I'm like, thank you. Because <laughs> I have had like... I it, I know you've had a complicated relationship with Fire Island. I've listened to a lot of the interviews you've done, as have I. And I think it's interesting hearing you talk about it. You, like, speak about it so well. The class issues, the way people are ranked, the fact that it's a astonishingly expensive. I went there for 18 hours, stayed at someone's house, paid for one drink, no meals. It still cost me $180. And I'm like, yeah. how? How is this happening? Yeah, it's, it's and I always insane. think, oh my God, I just, I'd rather go to Europe. 
you know it costs yeah about it's, the it's, al- it's almost easier to get there yeah in some ways but um it's an interesting thing that you you navigate as a gay person it's like what's my relationship to fire island it seems like a lot of work to me nowadays it's fraught yeah yeah, yeah 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 um conrad rigamora your casting specifically of conrad rigamora as darcy i think is the best darcy that i've oh ever my seen. god yeah i agree I grew up in a heavily, you know, big Pride and Prejudice house. My mom was a huge fan of the Colin Firth six-parter. Yeah. She read, she's a big Austin fan too. And I think of the word laconic when I think of Mr. Darcy. <laughs> like terse, terse bitch, I would say, is like <laughs> Mr. Darcy. And Conrad Rickamora is so good. He just seems pent up and pissed but also like he has so much humanity under the the surface and it's just perfect he's and ends up being quite lovable too totally so lovable he's a he's the ideal darcy i think it's the best darcy i've ever seen yeah we really i mean direct pride of prejudice adaptation or indirect yeah we really searched really long and hard and he was i think the last person we brought in to chemistry test with me and it was one of those things where like i didn't i hadn't written that part for an Asian American, mm-hmm. um, necessarily like the the race was unspecified, but I did think, like I remember when they were bring they told me they were bringing him in. I was like, I don't know, like the, if the dynamics will change, you know, with the sort of class system that I'm setting up. If the other guy is Asian too, and like I had all these reservations, and then he came in, and almost immediately, like he he left that that chemistry test, and I was like, I can rewrite this. I could re- I would rewrite any part of this script to make it work for him because he was so good and like part of it you know Andrew's talked about this a lot but like part of it was like our chemistry he was the only one that like truly flustered me like in our chemistry (sighs) read he was the only one like I was I was going up on lines that I had written you know like because I was so like put put off guard by him which Mm -hmm. is like which was such the dynamic you want in a in a Lizzie and Darcy you know uh, chemistry and so, yeah, he was uh, from the jump. Uh, he was like so perfect and so the one. And like, I think, um, I think it's a real indictment of Hollywood that he. This is the first time he's playing a romantic lead because he's so meant for it. He's so built for it. He has a background in Broadway. He was on How to Get Away with Murder, correct? Like yes. he's. Yeah. Um, and is he currently on or Little Shop of Horrors, or he was? He just, recently, yeah, he, he just, just um, he just finished, but he was, he, um, yeah. He's and he was so amazing good. in Seymour too. Yeah, he's he's so great. He's got an amazing range. Like I just think um I want the world for him. I really hope this blows him up in a big way. It is an indictment of Hollywood and I'm so glad that he, that you guys introduced the world to his like extraordinary brooding hotness as yeah. Mr. Darcy. So perfect. A+. plus. Right, creating um, roles that don't exist, right? When you you were talking about that as an Asian actor, you you're just like I'm not playing a delivery boy again. So yeah, you're just so you had to create the work for yourself, and then lo and behold, it works. Like what a surprise! It's completely reasonable. It's sort of amazing how much work you have to do just to do something that you know is natural and it will work yeah. anyway. Yeah, well, thanks for doing that for both you and everyone in the cast and Conrad as well with this project. Yeah, it's so good, Joel. the The concept is based on the wild, as you've just discussed with Matt, the wild discrepancies and 
money and who has money and how that money plays out on Fire Island. And it becomes a sort of perfect microcosm for what is captured as well in how class is talked about in Regency era England via Jane Austen. And you wrote this amazing piece for the Penguin website, the Penguin Random House website. Um, was that last year? When did you write that? No, that was like 2019. Yeah, it okay. was um, 2018, maybe even, honestly. Um, it's a yeah, it was a long time ago. It's a brilliant piece. You, you go through, you know, you not only talk about Pride and Prejudice, but you also talk about other Jane Austen works and how you see them as corresponding into uh, sort of like gay character types or archetypes. Um, but you, I just wanted to read out loud uh, what you wrote, that the, how, how this piece ends and, and listeners at home, go and read this. It's called Pride and Prejudice on Fire Island, What Jane Austen Knew About Being a Gay Man in the 21st Century. So this is the final paragraph of the piece. But what all these heroines have in common, a journey that every gay man at every level of our deeply toxic imaginary caste system can relate to, is seeing all the ridiculous rules that were created for you that you've somehow internalized and finally recognizing them as false. Austin detractors, sad literary meatheads, have often complained loudly about a lack of real conflict in her stories and bless them, but maybe what they're not connecting to is that struggle, that long, arduous path that each of Austin's heroes goes through to not only hold on to the love that they found, but to believe themselves worthy of it. So good, chills. <laughs> Thank you. Um, wow, I don't I, remember writing that, and I can't believe I did. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know if I have that in me anymore. I can believe that because I'm going to do something that podcasts us never do, which is speak highly of myself. Just kidding. <laughs> um, I've I've known that you are an amazing writer for a long time, for years. Yeah, you were one of my first editors. Yeah, I used to work at Paper Magazine, and Carrie O'Donnell, who you worked with on mm -hmm. the Billy Eichner on Billy on the Street, was an editor there, and he was like, "You have to have Joel write for PaperMag.com." And you wrote this amazing, you wrote several pieces for us, but you you wrote something really amazing about Zayn Malik when he oh, went One Direction God. that was so good. But I've known that you're a great writer for years, and I wanted to talk to you, you know, in preparing to speak to you for this episode, uh, listen to an interview that you did, I think last year, around the time that maybe you were making Fire Island about your struggles with writer's block. Yeah, the, it was the World of Depression podcast, right? Or Depression Depress Mode? It was de Depression yeah, yeah. Mode. Yeah. Um, for, for listeners at home, lis listen to it. To me, it's such an important interview and it's such an important depiction of someone who is, as I have been there before I've described it, as feeling like I'm in the bottom of a well, you know, like mm -hmm. just that flattening that, that depression has that you know, for me, I felt it acutely when I lost my own father four years ago. I know that you lost your father to COVID last year. Yeah. Did that, did the writer's block come with that? Like, did it come as a result of losing him? Was it folded I mean, into the grief of losing him or was it all sort of mixed in with everything else with COVID? It, and it definitely was, was mixed in and it was exacerbated. You know, I am bipolar. And when I recorded that podcast, I was in the midst of like a really deep, like I was in a cycle of 
depression coming out of mania into depression. And so I was very, very low at that point. And I think that for me, like it really, truly felt like I was never going to be able to write again, you know, and um, and I and that certainly changed. Like, I feel a lot better. And I think like honestly working on the movie really brought me out of that in in a big way, just engaging with um my creativity on that level was was really really helpful but yeah i mean it definitely i think we had at least i do as a writer like i feel the need to like write about everything that i'm feeling at any given point and i remember just like losing my dad and not having the ability to write about it which felt really mm-hmm. scary and i think like ultimately it was better you know um that i didn't try to to write about it then because i don't think i had fully processed it and i you know it's part of me is wonders if I have fully processed it to this day, but like, um, or if I ever will, you know, and it's just one of those things that it definitely played a, a part in my writer's block. But I think like chemically, I was just like blocked as well. Like well, there was just no you, way I was going to be able to produce anything. You know, what right. really struck me about that? And it's a profound interview, like truly, because you are right in the middle of this, but you are speaking so articulately about it from an objective perspective. And what struck me about that when you were saying, I'm, I'm, this is who I am now, I'm not going to write again, I was like, it's almost like that incredible self-awareness and ability to articulate that is the flip side of comedy in a, in a way. Like you're so watching yourself and, and, and you're actually making connections and understanding what's going on and talking about it. It was really kind of astonishing to me because I watched Fire Island and you're buoyant and alive and the leading character, you know, you, you really are the driving force of this film. And I just had, would have had no idea. I would have had no idea. And I'm like, that is astonishing to me that you could function on that level. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was several months later and I okay. had come out the other side of it. I, uh, not several. It was like two months later after that interview. Okay. And so like I, I had, I had sort of leveled out a little bit by then, um, chemically and so it was a little bit easier to engage but also i also find acting to be the easiest like of all the things that i do it's it's just so like when i was in that state that headspace like i felt like i was acting every day you know and like so it like acting has always been really easy to sort of slip into because it's it's just you know it doesn't have anything to do with what what i'm actually feeling in that moment um somebody tells you what to say yeah Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It just, and in fact, it's so easy sometimes when you're in a depressive state to just sort of like let go and lean into it and just like be somebody else. It's so, it's, it's almost a relief yeah, in a lot of ways. For sure. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're better. I'm glad that we check, we were checking in because we yeah. were like, we really want to know that you're much better than then. But you know, what you're saying, Joel, I think so many people would really do relate to and I know I relate to like that impression of being a human and like even your description on that interview of like I get up I make my bed I do tasks around my apartment I take care of administrative things and and I feel nothing that is so real that is that to me is is how my depressive states have felt like and how my grief felt like specifically after I lost my dad you know you talk about like processing losing him whether or not you'll ever really be able to to write about him, I still can't write about my dad or even, you know, we do this podcast about dads and we, the three of us, the, our co-host Aaron, who's not here, still struggle to even talk about our fathers coherently at times. So it's something that is super complicated. We realize um, how were things, you know, your father 
has made appearances in your stand-up. You were raised in a quite a religious household. Um, there's a you have not to not to repeat your joke back to you, but there's an amazing you have an amazing um, stand-up bit about uh, being a teenager and your dad trying to exercise, like trying to exercise a demon, and and that you are so outraged by him, thinking that you know he must literally exercise whatever is happening in you out of you that you start laughing maniacally in his face, which is not the thing to do when your dad thinks that you're possessed when by you're being, a demon. Having an exorcism with your father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell, can you talk a little bit about you know how things were? I'm assuming things were complicated between you two as a as a teenager. How how were things when he died? What was the relationship? You know, like when, I, when I'm grateful in a lot of ways because um, around the time he died, it was probably the least complicated our relationship has ever been, um, mm -hmm. and and in a, in a, one of the better places um, that it's been in a long time. And I think like. Um, you know, my parents have always been very deeply uncurious about what I do for a living because they know they won't approve. And I'm I'm perfectly OK with that. Like, I, I think I'm actually prefer it that way. But there were moments like I think, you know, right before the pandemic hit, I was able to pay off my student loans and like milestones like that. Like he just was so happy about that. And like I did a lot of work. I was living in a little tiny house during the pandemic, during lockdown, and I like built a lot of things. I installed a lot of shelves. I was like gardening and like I built a, a squat rack in my backyard using two by fours. And it was like sending him videos of those projects and stuff like that. Like, I don't think my dad has ever been prouder of me mm. than in the like the few months that he before he got COVID and passed. And like, I just, um, yeah, it was it's it's heartbreaking in a sense because I don't know, you know, who knows where our relationship could have gone. I, I don't know that, you know, it, it could have gotten much better than it was. But um, yeah. quite honestly, like, I'm, I'm so grateful that we weren't in a moment of, of tension or strife or anything like that. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, my last, you know, my last memories of my dad are, are actually quite happy. Good, good. I'm happy to hear that. It's such a hard, you know, we've talked about that with guests on the show. And when you have a situation with parents or relationships with parents where you're looking for approval or validation, you know, you mentioned they weren't that interested necessarily. I'm assuming in like that you were on a primetime NBC motherfucking show, Sunnyside, or that you've had all the success or that you had, you know, fire a Fox Searchlight movie coming out that you wrote, like stand up specials, you name it that they weren't, you know, that they were, that at least your father was more interested in the more practical adult yeah. side of it and yeah. getting, like, getting something from that and not the the NBC primetime show. Was that hard? Has that been difficult for you or, or were you no, already because at a part in your life that you were like, I don't expect Quite honestly, that like, them? I, I, yeah, I just, I, I let go of that a long time ago, yeah. um, that expectation of them. And like, you know, with my family, I've just learned, you know, you have to meet people where they are mm -hmm. sometimes. And, and like, totally. I don't see it as lowering expectations. It's just like, I, that is who they are. And this is where we are. And, um, you know, I, it's a line in the movie, but it is like, so what I believe, which is you find the family that can fill in the gaps, you know, and like, mm -hmm. I, I found that in that's why chosen family has always been so important to me. And it's not because they're replacing my family right. by any means, but it is just like, you meet people where they are and and I have people in my life who can be proud of me for these other milestones, you know, like I have the people that are filling in the gaps where my where my mom, you know, just can't 
just can't be like because of who she is like cannot be there for me in in all ways and be everything for me and so and i don't need and i don't expect her to and i i i can't ask her to be everything for me um and that's why you just bring people other people into your life to sort of you know shore you up and and fill in those gaps and that's what i've done and i feel really blessed to have you know be surrounded by people who um love me and support me in in the ways that my parents couldn't Totally. Yeah. I once had a therapist be like, stop going to the hardware store for oranges. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm so happy that you have people that can be your chosen family and can give you oranges. Yes. Oh, hi there. This is Matthew Philp. When we started producing Tell Me About Your Father back in 2019, Erin and Elizabeth and I did a lot of research into the best podcasting programs. One program that we're happy to have found and still use is Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, now let's get back to whichever specific episode of Tell Me About Your Father you're currently listening to. Okay, so let's move on to the news. This is the part of the show in which we determine how daddy issues play out in pop culture and current events. We'll be talking about stories that feature power structures, dysfunction, abandonment, addiction, family patterns, and Elon Musk's idea of what it means to be a man. Anything that would give our therapist pause, we will be talking about it. The culture at large is suffering from daddy issues, and we're here to offer our diagnoses. Let's begin. Matt. Courtney Kardashian and Travis Barker got married in Italy yesterday, and you have some thoughts about the person that married them. Tell them. Well, tell the, the thing is, yeah, what's going on. That's what it was. Like people, People Magazine showed the photos. There's a photo of them in, you know, at the altar in Portofino. She's in this flowing, ludicrous lace dress with the Virgin Mary's face on it. Dolce and Gabbana. Dolce and Gabbana. Historically homophobic Dolce and yeah. Gabbana. Yeah, there's, yeah. That's, the, that's my <laughs> and point racist. here. There's yeah. an incredible streak of explicit homophobia that runs through this entire, what could have been an incredibly camp theatrical moment. But like the guy that is the father, the pastor who's marrying them is um, Chad Veach the leader of the Zoe church in Los Angeles, which I'm not sure if you're, well, oh my God. So <laughs> the reason that I bring this up too, is because you were involved in, um, the other two, the HBO mm -hmm. show, which is one of the finest satires of contemporary culture. Oh my God, it's an onslaught, but there is this one story arc in which Chase Dreams, who is loosely based on Justin Bieber goes and joins one of these like Hillsong cool young people churches. And then he has to leave because it, they find out that it, the guy is homophobic. That is the case here. Like this guy, if you go to, he, he, he famously kind of avoids talking about politics and issues, LGBT things. He doesn't like talking about life stuff. The New York times did a feature on him and, um, he actually said, I want to be loud and dumb. That's my goal. If we aren't making people laugh, what are we doing? What is the point? And it's like, I mean, the point is the grift. Like, 
because he if he's not being featured on preachers in sneakers the instagram where it's like young mm. cool preachers wearing like yeezys he's oh, actually Jesus. standing in portofino in this catholic baroque insanity place fit, surrounded by like velvet and gold wearing like <laughs> gary oldman's like red velvet gown from dracula it's just insane that this aristocratic family the kardashians just explicitly leave this streak of homophobia right out there right out there didn't check don't care doesn't matter it's sort of amazing to me that they can be this marketable and people can relate to them this much and that can be so prominent you know what i mean it's interesting they have a really like opaque very strange relationship to the gay community as a, a cultural institution mm. like i of course yeah. no mm. gay men who obsess over the Kardashians too, but like, I don't think they court it in any certain way, yeah. you know, like obviously they have one big sort of glaring connection to the LGBTQ community right. in uh, Caitlin. But like beyond that, like they don't engage, I don't think with like being like, I don't think they're interested in being gay icons, which is I don't so, think it matters to them. It's so I just I just watched Kim Kardashian's Architectural Digest tour and I'm like, how? Are you not aiming squarely at gay men? You yeah. are walking through a monochrome house. Your life is a post-postmodern performance art piece now. And it's she, drag. It's drag. Total drag. Mm -hmm. It's like who else is getting this on the level you must be intending it? But gay men. And then you just like <laughs> throw this like loser preacher who's like a cult leader. Ugh. Like where it's like right in the in the middle of it. Anyway, well, the thing is, is they're not interested in engaging with the wider culture at all. I don't think like they've created their right. own sort of ecosystem of being Kardashians that they don't really have to engage with anything that they don't want to engage with. You right. know, like it, it, they are their own sort of culture unto themselves, and so they don't. I, I don't feel that they, they. They feel that super beholden to to anything outside of but what see, they're they're creating. You know creating. what's interesting mm -hmm. about that? That's a yes, a hundred percent. But what's interesting about that is that despite the fact that they're largely bulletproof because they have so much money and fame and they can do whatever they want, there's still these little priest vultures that can circle them, like they do with Bieber, that kind of have their ear and kind of go, no, no, come on, you got to do stuff with the church. You got to come on, you got to, and then it plays on that guilt that they have. So these are the, this dude is like the, he's like one of these vultures. That's their jugular. That's their, their weak, their Achilles heel. I mean, it's long documented with the Jenner Kardashian family, their affiliation with these questionable churches. And I feel yeah. like Chris, Chris founded her own church recently Thank in God. the past year. As you know, I don't know. Like, okay. I guess. I mean, like, that's the logical and, next step, yes. right? right? Like that's you know, that's the only place they could go. At no now. taxes. Yeah. yeah. Um. The one thing that I'll say about Travis Barker is that um, he does seem like he means well. Like if that's like the most charitable thing that I'll say about him. However, I do do not appreciate the fact that he allows his teenage children to have a pet monkey. I feel that that is very very irresponsible and we're not even going to talk about monkeys because of monkey p asterisk asterisk that is going around mm -hmm. the country right now and is really upsetting 
true. <laughs> so we're moving on to talk about another performance of Catholicism, which was what weirdly Travis and Courtney's wedding was, which is the horror show and proof that cancel culture is not real and that Mel Gibson is back directing a movie with Mark Wahlberg called Father Stew, which is a real... Together at last. Those bosom buddies are back together. Um, They've created a biopic called Father Stew. It feels like a very, it will never see the light of day type thing, although it does seem to have a summer release date. Um, it's about a Catholic priest who tragically died of ALS, was a boxer previously before converting to become a Catholic priest. Um, but I noticed that um, there's one little funny bit and the only positive review I can find is shockingly by the National Catholic Reporter, which calls the movie, quote, a love, love letter to God. <laughs> uh, but there's an, an amazing anecdote from the real life father Stu's father his own father it's played by mel gibson in the movie um he told the reporter it's something that he would have never thought could happen in a million years though he would have picked nick nolte or jeff bridges for the role <laughs> fair but but he was impressed with gibson's portrayal he nailed his montana accent <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny that this man's dad was like, I wish that Nick Nolte or Jeff Bridges had played me. <laughs> like that. I mean, I get it. I fully get it. Like, yeah. But yeah, the fact that Mel Gibson and Mark Wahlberg haven't, I mean, Mark Wahlberg has always been so problematic, but why is Mel Gibson still roaming, roaming the halls of culture? It makes me insane. But Matt, I was talking to you about this and you said, you went to a work to a Barry's oh, boot camp yesterday it, where they were Soul playing Mark, class, yeah. Marky Mark. Really? Yes. Class, and this guy. That is such a stretch to include him as in '90s bangers, right? Like, and I was listening to the song. I was listening to Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, and the whole thing was so fraught because, first of all, I'm listening to it going. The only reason this song has any soul is because of the black woman singing in the right. background and the chorus who are all african-american voices he's just like rapping about how cool he is but they're the ones bringing it people they're playing the song and, and the guy the the um, instructor is like do you guys remember marky mark he was so hot remember the calvin klein at everyone's 24 they're like no and then he goes he's still hot and i'm like in the front row and i go he's a piece of shit like he's a piece of shit let's be fair and then later on he's like we're doing triceps and he's like, as you're doing your arms, like imagine like Marky Mark walks in and just go, hey, Marky Mark, look at me, do tricep workouts. And oh, I'm like, Jesus. And I go, he would beat you and I to death, Taylor. Yeah. That's what would happen if we were flirting with him in a soul cycle class. Ugh. But it's really loud. So nobody heard my material. Anyway, it was just kind of <laughs> weird. I'm like, how do you not know this about him? His superfluous third nipple. I, I think that people aren't as terminally online as um if you're not terminally online it's hard to, to yeah. parse out like yeah. i just don't think people are talking about mark Wahlberg. no they're like not. some of the crazy my favorite my favorite uh, like crazy mark Wahlberg tidbit is that he said if he was on the 9-11 plane <laughs> it wouldn't have gone down that way yeah. like i love i love that arrogance That's i love so good. like 
I think about that all the time. Yeah. He would have muscled his way in. And also oh, the yeah. arrogance to try to get your, your teenage hate crime when let which you left a man blinded um to permanently taken off of your police record. Like the the man's ego is unparalleled. And of course he's working with Mel Gibson. The best thing, I mean, one um, of the most toxic sets imaginable oh my god God. vatican one cult that he's in that is deeply deeply anti-semitic and the thing is i watched the father stew um preview and he actually comes out like um marky mark mark Wahlberg stands there at the front in a church before the actual trailer plays and goes i'm mark Wahlberg. this is the trailer for father stew i really hope you'll enjoy the trailer for father stew and then the trailer plays it's like we know we could see that. <laughs> I wonder, Joel, did you think of doing that for your trailer? Just like standing no. there on a beat, asking people nicely to like it? Yeah, yeah no, no, I no, haven't. No, no, I no, he doesn't ask you that. to like it. He doesn't ask you to like it. He's just, oh, not like it, like actually, like like the thing. right. No, no, just enjoy the just trailer. Enjoy yeah. the trailer. Yeah, I I hadn't thought of just directly well, asking people to enjoy it. I think I wonder that would have moved the needle a little bit. Yeah, for me. please don't Jeb Bush your own trailer. Yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, well, okay. So moving on from Father Stu, I I'm I almost didn't want to talk about uh, the next topic, which is Johnny Depp. By the time this this episode comes out, the trial hopefully will be over between the defamation trial between him and Amber Heard. It's, you know, the the narrative around this, I think, because Amber Heard is not a perfect victim, she, uh, you know, contributed to and it's been talked about at length in this trial issues, of, you know, that, that, that she was also, quote, abusive or that there were things that were also happening in, on her end in the relationship, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that Americans have the ability to grasp the nuance of any of that. And we see that coming out sideways. And this strange to me baffling fandom of Johnny Depp I don't I don't understand who it feels almost Michael Jackson level yeah like why do you know why Joel like Like why we were talking about this why do you have any idea is it is it Pirates of the Caribbean is it I think it's like I think it is like like what is that no I think it started like all the way that far back is like Benny and June. Like I think yeah. that like oh. people have always yeah. slotted in liking Johnny Depp as a personality trait because he does right. these like sort of wild outlandish characters right. and he's been associated with like character acting for so long. And and I think people think that Johnny Depp is like a singular talent that must be protected at all costs, like it's... a once in a generation talent. And I I just don't see him that way. Yeah, I just right. don't. I, I also am, am flabbergasted by it, but I also think that it is sort of... um. I think people, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it either. And I think that people have a hard time not, I think the adoration of the rock and roll bad boy and, you know, with rings and scarves, who's, who's you know, this version of a Keith Richards impersonation that got turned into this character, Captain Jack Sparrow. And that that people think that he's these characters. There's that that obvious read on it, but then I think there's also I don't know to me sort of like a chilling obsession with him and villainizing of her that is really disturbing to watch played out. And I just found this tweet thread of people 
who have been going, somebody screenshotted his fans who are going on to his children who I deeply feel for, and I'm sure have been horribly affected or, or at least affected by their father's behavior in the past. And some of that's come up in the trial. Leaving comments on Lily Rose Depp's Instagram, that's like in all caps, please support your father. Amber is not the victim. Stop showing pictures of your tits. Do you have access to your father's legal team in all caps? Like just cuckoo crazy on her Instagram account. There's like this level too of his fans that have like turned into like their own sort of like detectives and their own legal experts on TikTok. And I've watched some of these videos where it's like Amber Heard owned by Johnny Depp's lawyers and like nothing happens. It's like their yeah. lawyer objects and that's it. It's but, almost yeah, like it's almost a detriment that people have so much access to this trial because it's so easy to take things out of context or to right. watch part of it and think, feel like you're getting all of it. I, and I, I'm I'm deeply no matter what you think, who is right in this situation or what, like mocking Amber Heard's testimony on Ugh, TikTok, like I fucking know. Lance Bass, like Lance Bass yeah. eat shit. Send eat him to space. Shit. Get the fuck out of here with that Ew, shit. Like I know, so gross. Don't even go Google it if you're listening. So it's yeah, not don't give him the it's views. So stupid. What an it's idiot. So it's it's really sick. It's really disgusting. And she will and, and everybody and he's not the only one, but he's definitely one of the more high profile ones. And it's just like so sad that like I don't know. We should yeah. have sent him to space and left him up there when we had the chance. Yeah. Gravity yeah, too. Exactly. <laughs> Gravity too. Um, well, this headline popped out to me um, specifically because we haven't heard from him for a while, but the New York Post is very interested in Hunter Biden's, what they're describing as his quote, sugar brother, <laughs> not a sugar daddy. He's moved on from the sort of trope of like his father. It's cleaning up his messes. Now it's turned into the subplot about a Los Angeles-based lawyer and novelist, Kevin Morris, who's paid off his $2 million delinquent taxes, which he's currently being investigated by the Department of Justice for. But I love the I love the term sugar brother. Yeah. I, um, why can't why couldn't it be just a sugar daddy? Is it just because their ages are too well it's similar? Like reason. I don't think that's ever stopped people from being referred Probably. to as sugar daddies it's, before. It's because sometimes men need things to have a different name. You know, like yeah. remember when yes. Pete Wentz decided that he had to call eyeliner guyliner? Like it was just like super important to like, it's not that threatening to wear eyeliner if you call it guyliner. So we just give it a different yeah. name. You just use the same moisturizer, but it's in a black tube. So that's that makes it safe. So it's Masculine. less creepy. Yeah. It also is like, Sugar brother, like, I don't know. Isn't that just a friend? You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, that's yeah. what is the dude that shows up to help his friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the New York Post. They're so trying to be like, great. Yeah. But the New York Times also wrote about Kevin Morris. They didn't mention the phrase sugar brother, obviously, but they talked at length about how he's actually been kind of a headache for the White House because he's so in Hunter's life and really encourages him to push back and fight back against the Trump backers that are like obsessed with what was on his laptop and leaking the texts and going back to, yeah, but there are these photos and what happened with Ukraine and all of that stuff, whatever. But I thought this one of the saddest things in the New York Times article was like, it was like one of those news analysis pieces that they do. And it's like, you know, the White House has, has remained pretty quiet about Kevin Morris. They seem to not be that thrilled about how close he is with Hunter, his influence. 
but then are also just happy kind of that he has a friend, which is like <laughs> tragic. It's well, tragic. And I and I don't want to laugh at Hunter Biden because I don't think it's funny. It's, he's struggled a lot with addiction. But I also struggle with him in all of this narrative around his addiction because I don't know if his dad wasn't his dad and also his dad who was, you know, came up with all of the legislation that has put tons of people in jail for low level drug crimes and offenses. You know, he would be in jail, but he's not. Yeah, he's it's crazy. A lot of- every political dynasty has a Hunter Biden. Mm. Yes, um, like they every every single one has a Hunter Biden, and it just so happens that in the case of the Bushes, one of them became the Hunter Biden of the Bush family became president. <laughs> um, it's so just kind of crazy. It's so true. Well, my favorite anecdote about Kevin Morris, which is in also the New York Times piece, is that he's been sniffing around. It got caught spying on this movie set of a son of a movie called My Son Hunter, which is currently being filmed in wait for it, Serbia. Oh, my God. uh, It sounds like a a self bankrolled, you know, movie about the hunter has been secretly, you know, working with. Barista filmed by like Dinesh time. D'Souza like it hasn't like, exactly yeah, <laughs> exactly Dinesh D'Souza that. productions well let's end with my favorite story that I found for this which is about a, a fish that's called the mouse almighty it's an Australian fish and the headline for the New York Times story is my favorite headline in a long time meet mouth almighty comma a different kind of fish dad a different kind of um, fish dad this is a New York Times science story about a, a species literally called the mouth almighty. They have very strong jaws and they carry fertilized eggs in their mouths. So they're sort of like seahorses in that they carry the babies. Um, but curiously enough, they sometimes carry the babies of other fathers, that they're not the fathers of these babies. And so scientists who study them are now wondering if maybe they're not monogamous and there's some po- there's some polyamory in the mouth the mouth and almighty it's a community. deeply matriarchal fish society as well where the yeah. men maybe they're just friends maybe it's maybe just like just hunter friends. and Ke- they're just buddies yeah. they're maybe just they're buddies just... helping each other out there's another line in this story that's really funny that's like a scientist that then pushes back on the polyamory narrative because fish can't have anything apparently and is like, yeah, but there's also some thought that maybe mouth almighty male fish carry the fish of other fathers to be more attractive to female mouth almighties. So who knows what the truth is, but we we support them on their journey. We thank them for being a different kind of fish dad. Yeah, trying to break the cycle. <laughs> they're trying to break the cycle. That's what they're doing. They're trying to do the Show work. We're ending right on on time. Joel, thank you so, so much for coming on. Like, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We're so excited to have you. And we just loved and adored Fire Island. And everybody needs to go watch it Which comes out July, uh, June also 5th. Also love and adore it. Right? June 2nd. Mm-hmm. June 2nd, sorry, on Hulu. It's, it's on Hulu. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, cool. It's out now. It's out now. And look for, for Joel's Netflix special, June 21st psychosexual we can't wait thanks joel we can't wait thank you thanks guys tell me about your father and daddy issues are created and produced by aaron hosier elizabeth thompson and matthew philp follow us at tell me about your father on instagram and facebook 
subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.